Good morning again. Good morning again. There you go. A minute ago, our entire sound system shut down, and uh, that's what happened. So y'all powered through that well. Thank you for that. Hopefully, this microphone and uh, all the others will continue to work. If not, I have a spare behind me, and it may not make any difference if the whole system shuts down again, but I'll just uh, keep talking loudly. Um, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. That's where we're going to be together in just a minute. We started a study last week that will take us over the next couple of uh, weeks thinking about our lives together, and that's what we're calling this series, Life Together. And in this series, we're looking at the church and exploring ways that we can become a more deeply connected body of believers and what might happen if we did life together more regularly. How might we experience change within our church how might our understanding of church change if, if it was more than just here in this room once a week? Um, and this series I, I mentioned last week, I just want to remind you again, has a couple of goals, really. Uh, one of those is that we are in the process as a church of, of relaunching our small group ministry. And so I want us to think together as a community, what, what does it mean to be a church uh, that, that has small groups and that is a part of small groups uh, and over the next several weeks, you know, you, you're going to continue hearing about opportunities to sign up for a group or to form a group if you're interested in leading one. Uh, and if you have questions about that, you can see Stuart Greger or Robin Yeldell, and uh, they can get you information about that. There's going to be training for leaders so that you'll feel prepared and signups that will take place. And so that, that's one of the purposes of this group is to help us think about uh, that ministry as we're getting ready to launch that again. But beyond small groups, whether you're in a group or not, I want all of us really over the next several weeks to take a step deeper into community. That's really what we're after. And I want this series to help us thinking about that and what that, might, what that one step might be for you, because your one step deeper into this family might be different, most likely will be different than someone else's step. And so I want you to think about that as we work through these sermons over the next several weeks. And to help us think about community and what it means to be a part of a community of faith, uh, we're, we're going to look at several one another passages in the New Testament. And today's one another passage is maybe the greatest of all the one another passages, love one another. And so we'll look uh, in John chapter 13 together in just a minute where Jesus talks about this command that he gives to love one another. But before we read there, let's pray together as we, as we prepare to study God's Word. Father, we're thankful this morning for this gathering, for the chance to be here. We're, we're thankful, Father, for a moment to slow down and to pause, to prepare for the week ahead as we think about our place in the world, our place in this community of faith and our place as a community in the way that we live our lives in this world. Father, we pray this morning as we study your word together that you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you want us to see and hear. We pray through the name of Jesus. Amen. John chapter 13, I'm going to begin in verse 31 and read through verse 38. John says, when he was gone, that he was Judas, 
had gone to betray Jesus, Jesus said to the rest of the disciples that are still there, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself and will glorify Him at once. My children, I will, not, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I, I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. In just a few hours from these words, Jesus would be hanging on a cross and he knows that it's coming. So now as he sits with the remaining disciples, you get this sense of urgency about the things that he wants to say. He wants to say the things that must be said before he dies. And a part of that urgent message is this new command, love one another. The disciples are to love one another. That we are to love one another is, is a part of the command we receive. But th- that command in and of itself, really, if you think about it, is not anything new. But that we are to love one another with the sort of love that Jesus modeled is a very new command. The disciples knew that love was important. There's no doubting as you read the entire Bible that love is a pretty important thing. In other places in the Gospels, it's clear that the greatest command is love of God and love of neighbor, and one another are included in love of neighbor. So the disciples know this is not something that they have not heard before. The love of another person is not a new command, so what does Jesus mean by this new command I give to you? And what he means is not that the command itself is new, but the way that you are to live it out is new. Just before these verses that we just read together, Jesus has been, as I said, sharing a meal with his disciples, the last supper before his death. And during that meal, the first part of John chapter 13, Jesus gets up and he goes and he washes his disciples' feet. And after he finishes washing their feet, he says this, he says, now that I Your Lord and Master, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. Foot washing in our culture is uh, is not, you know, doesn't doesn't connect with us in the same way that it would have for the disciples. It's it's something that honestly would feel kind of odd if we just, you know, we're like, well, this morning as a part of the sermon and illustration, we have some chairs up here. We're going to just row by row, take turns, and each of us wash each other's feet to try to have some sort of application. It would be so foreign and odd for each of us because it's not a part of our culture that it, it might miss the point in the attempt to illustrate the text. It might actually miss the point because it's so foreign, but it was not foreign to the disciples, 
So for us to think about what exactly happened at the beginning of John chapter 13 when Jesus washed these disciples' feet, I really think you have to reimagine the foot washing scene. Because what made the foot washing powerful, and I think this changes the way you read the first part of John chapter 13, what made the foot washing powerful was not the foot washing. See, in our culture, that is what's I mean, it's powerful enough because you're like, that's disgusting, right? I don't want to touch any of your feet, though I love you, and I don't want any of you touching mine, right? Nobody's going to amen that. You want your feet touched? It, it seems odd to us, right? It's, it's foreign. It's, it's unfamiliar. It's, it's awkward, honestly. But what made the foot washing powerful was not the foot washing because for them it was normal. That was a normal practice for them. What made it powerful was that Jesus, their Lord and Master, was the one doing the foot washing. This would be like the Queen of England coming to your house to clean your toilets. Right? Lana and I have been watching The Crown on Netflix. Maybe some of you are fans as well. And, and, and it's this, the whole series show, tells the story of Queen Elizabeth. And there's this episode in season three that tells a story about an incident that actually happened in the 1960s, where this small coal mining village, Aberfan, is destroyed due to a landslide, and more than 100 people die as a result of this tragedy, mostly children. This is an actual picture that they replicate in the, in the show of, of this, this, you know, cemetery, this funeral that they had, and they just had one funeral for everybody that died. It was this devastating event. And everyone, this is a little bit of a spoiler, although it's not really because it actually happened, but if you haven't seen the show, that it might be a little bit of a spoiler for you. Everyone, when this event happens, everyone, including the prime minister, is going to Queen Elizabeth and is trying to convince the queen to make an appearance to fly to this small village, to make an appearance to comfort the families that have lost loved ones because there's going to be this funeral service and everybody's going to gather. Many children have died. And at one point in in the show, I don't know if this actually happened in real life, but at one point in the show, they go to the queen again and they've asked multiple times, will you please go and Comfort these families. Make an appearance. Show your support. And at one point, the queen says, the crown doesn't go. The crown may go to hospitals, but the crown would never go to a place where there's been a tragedy. The queen doesn't go, and everybody would have known this, right? And yet they still continue to plea with her to do it. I tell that story because I believe this is what the disciples would have known as well. Lords and masters don't wash feet. Servants wash feet. There are certain things that people in positions of authority just don't do. And in the case of John 13, lords and masters are in that category of people that don't wash feet. Which is why when Jesus is washing their feet, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. At first, Peter isn't having it. Until Jesus sets him straight, and then he kind of relents, right? But I still get this picture as that scene plays out. He's not really a fan that it's happening still. Cleaning toilets, sweeping floors, 
is common for common people, ordinary people. But if we saw someone in a high position of authority doing these things, we would be bothered by it. Not because of the thing that they were doing, but because it was them that was doing it. You with me? And that is what's playing out in this scene in John chapter 13. And what Jesus knows is that by doing this remarkable thing, he is redefining what it means to be a Lord and a master. What it means to be someone with authority. No longer are you lording it over people. By his actions, he says, the way forward is and will always be from this point on to serve. He knows that when you've had your feet washed by the master, it will probably unsettle you enough that you feel compelled to get busy washing other people's feet too. So what he means, I believe, by giving them this new command is not that they are to literally start washing everybody else's feet, though it might mean that, it doesn't only mean that. Jesus' point is that the way that they are to love one another, the way that they are to love one another is through a life of service, through a life of sacrifice, a life of humbling themselves and putting other people before themselves. He, he shows them love in the first part of John chapter 13, and then he talks to them about love at the end of John chapter 13. And we can easily, I think, fall into the habit of doing the opposite. We want to talk about love and how we should love each other and we should love one another and we should love our enemies and we should love our neighbors. But there's not a lot of display of that love maybe that precedes that. Jesus shows them love and then he talks about love. And I would say, if you show me someone that you believe really loves another person, if you say, Doug, I want you to look, watch this person and watch how they love this other person, you know, and, and you were to point them out to me, what I would guarantee you is that that love would be proven to you and me in their actions toward the person that you're describing that they love. Love of another is love when it is on display through actions and through our lives. That, that is Jesus' message. That is this new command. And we know how to do it because we have seen it ourselves. This is how John says it later in 1 John. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What John's saying is, is this, is that your feet have been washed by the Lord and Master that you follow. Your life has been purchased by the blood of Jesus that you follow. Your sins have been forgiven by the Savior who, whose life reigns over your life. You have been loved, and because you have been loved, you know how to love. He shows them love first, and then he says, do as I have done. Here's another way to say it, to simplify it, because I want it to stick in our minds. I believe that love happens because love happened. We know how to love because it happened to us first. 
unless someone has this profound experience of being loved, it might be difficult for them to even know, or maybe even impossible for them to know how to love another person, which is why I think we have to be reminded again and again and again that God became human and died for us, a people that could not have deserved it less. That, church, is love. And what that means is that there is nothing that you have done, there is nothing that you could do, there is nothing that you will do or won't do or might be slow to do that will make God love you less. No matter how stubborn you are or difficult you are, amen, God loves you. No matter if following Jesus for you is a struggle or you found it difficult to change habits and behaviors and patterns in your life, you are loved. And in the church, the church is the first place to put the command to love one another into action. Without love of one another deeply ingrained into the fabric of who we are as a church body, what what will happen is we will lose our witness or at least risk losing our witness. Because what, what we know is that the world is watching Scripture talks about love of neighbors and love of enemies, and those certainly are true and they must happen, but it starts with love for one another. It starts with our love for one another because if we cannot love one another, then we have no voice. We have no witness because our friends and our neighbors and our enemies alike will all look at the church and will say, why should we believe you? in all your talk about love when you don't even do it for yourself. You don't even follow your own teaching. Which is why Jesus says to his disciples, by this, right? By what? By love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. The world will know that we follow the crucified Lamb of God and claim him as our Lord and Master because of the way that we love one another. Love will happen because we understand how it happened and that it happened first. Author Gary Burge said it this way. It's kind of a long quote, but I wanted to, to share all of it because I think it's, it encapsulates really what, what I'm trying to communicate this morning. He says, Nothing so astonishes a fractured world as a community in which radical, faithful, genuine love is shared among its members. There are many places that you can go to find communities of shared interest. There are many places you can go to find people just like yourself. But it is the mandate of the church to become a community of love, a circle of Christ's followers who invest in one another because Christ has invested in them, who exhibit love not based on the mutuality and attractiveness of its members, though you might be beautiful and we might have things in common, I'm not interested in loving you for any of that. And you shouldn't be interested in loving each other for any of that. We love based on the model of Christ who washed the feet of everyone, including Judas. Here's what I think this quote is trying to say or is saying. What makes our love for one another impressive, worth 
taking note of, worth acknowledging. What makes it remarkable is that we are not all alike, and yet we can still actively express love for one another. And this is so important for us to remember, because we can be guilty of trying to make ourselves more alike instead of allowing our individuality to exist as the body of Christ. There will always be groups where you can go to find when you walk into a room that everybody shares your same interests and people have your personality and they, they, they like the things you like and they don't like the things you like. They like the people you like. They don't like the people you don't like, right? But this is not how the church was imagined. And I think it's really important that churches, Christians, remember that this is not how the church was imagined. Church was imagined to be a community that was made up of men and women and children and adults and Jews and Gentiles and black and white and rich and poor that were all a part of the family of God. And we show and extend love based on Christ's actions, not upon the merit or the character or the quality of the relationships that we have with one another. We show and extend love based on Christ's actions toward us as the people that are a part of this community. Yes, Scripture talks about the importance of love of neighbors and love of enemies. But the love for our neighbors and enemies, I really believe, gets practiced here in the church first. This community is where we learn how to love. We know what to do because we've seen it on display. And over the next several weeks, we're going to continue to explore what exactly it means as we are instructed as a community of Christians to follow Jesus together. And I, and I mentioned at the beginning that we're going to talk about and look at a number of one another passages over the next several weeks together. But I wanted to start today with love for one another because I think all the other things we're going to talk about really start here. They grow out of this one. They grow out of this one another command. We're going to look at being devoted to one another and building one another up and bearing one another's burdens forgiving one another and showing hospitality to one another and praying for one another and confessing to one another. But all of those things happen because we understand first and foremost that love for one another is, what, is why those things happen. Those are really the application of what it looks like to love one another. How do I love you and how do you love me? By being devoted to you, by building each other up, by bearing your burdens and you bearing mine by forgiving one another and confessing and showing hospitality and praying for one another. Those are the ways that love for one another gets applied in a community, in a church. And I believe as we live with this self-sacrificial, faithful, genuine love for one another, that what we are doing as we do that is what Jesus commanded us to do. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are overwhelmed by your love for us, and we're thankful for the gift of that love that we did not deserve. We're thankful, Father, as we think about this church body, that we have people who are not like us, that we get to practice what it, what it means to love one another 
with real people in relationships that care about us and we care about them. And we pray, Father, as a church family, that you'll grow us in our love for one another. That we'll continue to be gracious and patient and forgiving of one another as we live our lives together. And it may be, Father, as we think about this community, that there are some in our church family who have a need to make a relationship within this family right. I pray that over the next several weeks, you will impress upon their hearts the need and the importance of pursuing a health in that relationship that maybe they don't currently experience. Father, we know how to love because we have seen it with our own eyes. We've experienced it with our own hearts. And we are thankful that you not only talked about it, but that you put it on display with your life that took you all the way to the cross. And we ask, Father, that as we seek to love one another, that we also will lay down our lives for each other. And that you'll help us to count the cost of what that means and how that plays out, because honestly, it's hard. It's hard to to love to that extent, which is why so few people do it. And so we pray that you'll help us, that your spirit will empower us and give us courage and strength and perseverance to do, to live into this new command that you've given us. We pray through the name of Jesus who will be able to make that prayer possible. And the church said, amen. If you would stand with me this morning.